to Sweden and Brazil to Pakistan, an international reckoning is taking place. Although the Me Too movement began with activists here in the United States, similar pushes for women's rights have since emerged from around the world. The treatment and status of women and girls is fundamentally shifting, changing cultural taboos and overcoming political barriers because of the many brave women who have chosen to speak out against what has been normalized for far too long. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening features Rachel Vogelstein and Megan Stone, Senior Fellows at the Council on Foreign Relations and co-authors of the newly released Awakening, Me Too and the Global Fight for Women's Rights. Michelle Thomas, Assistant Vice President in the Chief Compliance Office at AT&T, joins us to moderate this important discussion. You can purchase your copies of Awakening at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner, and our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember, that code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just this book. This program is part of the Patricia M. Patterson Endowed Lecture Series. Pat is a member of both our council and the Council on Foreign Relations as she has been for a long time. And she's proud to support both of our organizations. We appreciate her sustained su support and dedication to the council's mission and programming. Additional support for this program is provided by Paige Hendricks Public Relations. Thank you so much. We're always happy to partner across the North Texas community, and tonight we have some wonderful organizations with us. I'd like to thank the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum for their partnership tonight, as well as our promotional partners, the Dallas Area Rape Crisis Center, League of Women Voters of Dallas, and the Women in LGBT Center at SMU. Thank you for being with us. The Council will continue to offer top-tier virtual programming through summer and into the beginning of fall, so continue to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. And now I'd like to invite Paige Hendricks to introduce tonight's speakers. Paige is an expert strategic communications consultant, and after a career in newspapers in Alabama and New York, she returned to DFW to found Paige Hendricks Public Relations. Paige is on the Board of Educational First Steps and on the TCU's Schieffer College Board of Visitors. She is a valued member of our council, and we thank her for her engagement on the issue we are here to discuss this evening. And with that, Paige, I will uh, give it over to you, so please take it away. Thank you so much, Liz. Rachel Vogelstein is the Douglas Dillon Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Director of its Women and Foreign Policy Program. She has worked for the advancement of women's rights around the globe from many different perspectives, as a lawyer, a professor, in the State Department and at the White House, in the nonprofit sector with the Clinton Foundation, and in an expert advisor role on several boards, from Time's Up to the National Women's History Museum. Megan Stone is CFR's Senior Fellow for Women and Foreign Policy. With her background in women's advocacy, international development, 
and media outreach, he has led projects with the World Economic Forum, FIFA, the United Nations, the Clinton Global Initiative, and Bono's One campaign. He previously served as president of the Malala Fund, a nonprofit advocating for women's education worldwide, as well as an entrepreneurship fellow at Harvard University's Shorenstein Center. As Liz mentioned, joining us to moderate tonight's program is Michelle Thomas. Michelle serves as AT&T's Assistant Vice President in the Chief Compliance Office. She's responsible for programs that drive the ethical culture of the company. Previously, she worked in external and legislative affairs at AT&T, where she interfaced with federal, state, and local elected officials, as well as business and community leaders. He served as chairperson for the North Texas Ethics and Compliance Council and on the AT&T Women's Leadership Council, among her other community roles. How fortunate we are to have Michelle with us to guide the conversation this evening and to provide her unique perspective. Michelle, over to you. Thank you so much, Paige, and thank you, Liz, for your leadership at the World Affairs Council here in Dallas and for inviting me for this timely and important discussion with Rachel and Negan. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with two champions in the fight of uh, women's rights. They are colleagues at the Council for Foreign Relations, Women and Foreign Policy Program and now co-authors. Since 2017, millions have joined the global movement known as hashtag MeToo catalyzing an unprecedented wave of women's activism powered by technology that reaches across borders, races, religions, and economic divides. Today, women in more than 100 countries are using the hashtag to fight the violence and discrimination they face, and they're winning. What started as an online campaign against sexual harassment has triggered the most widespread cultural reckoning on women's rights in history with global implications for women's participation in economy, politics, and across social and cultural life. Awakening is the first book to capture the global impact of this breakthrough movement, bringing together political analysts and inspiring personal stories from women in seven countries, Brazil, China, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sweden, and Tunisia. Awakening takes readers to the front lines of a networked movement that's fundamentally shifting how women organize for their own equality. That from the inside book cover of Awakening. So welcome, Megan, welcome, Rachel, and congratulations on the launch of your book, Awakening, just two days ago. Thank you so much. So I love how uh, you start the book with your stories in the author's notes. Um, so let's begin this discussion by you telling us a little bit more of your experience and in essence, your awakening in the advancement of women's rights. Rachel, do you wanna start us off? Absolutely, and let me take an opportunity to thank you for moderating tonight and to the World Affairs Council for hosting us. Uh, we're really privileged to be here to talk about awakening. You know, I started thinking about this project 
in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I had worked on the campaign trying to elect the first woman president of this country. And in the aftermath, I was really struck by the rise of women's activism. And we of course remember the Women's March of 2017 and the millions who turned out and made their voices heard. But what really struck me is that the Up March ended up taking place across the globe. It was the largest global protest for women's rights in history on every continent. And we quickly saw the rise in women's voices continue with the spread of the global Me Too movement that exploded later that year. And as you said, is now in over hundred countries. And then it translated into a rise in women's political participation. We saw record numbers of women running for office in a diverse group of countries, not only here in the United States, but also in Afghanistan, in Brazil, in the Middle East. And while the media here was certainly covering what was happening with the Me Too movement and the rise in women's activism in this country, you know, we felt that the global campaign was really absent from the headlines. And we knew this was a story that had to be told. And I'm so privileged to have had a chance to go on the journey to the front lines of this movement together with Megan. Megan. Thank you so much as well, Michelle. It is just such a thrill to be here. And thank you, Paige, for all of your generous support. And I was telling this esteemed group of women before we started that I grew up in small town, Virginia. The rest of my family grew up in the beautiful state of Texas, but my dad was in the military. And we uh, had the opportunity to go to talks like this when I was a little girl. And so I, I feel like events like this are, frankly, one of the reasons that I'm here talking to you about human rights and talking to you about this book. So I just want to say thank you to everyone that's made tonight possible and everyone that's attending. You know, for me, the, the start of this was really just working with women human rights defenders, right? So these are women fighting for human rights all over the world in some of the most difficult places to be a woman. Some of those countries are places we write about in the book you know, places like Pakistan or in the north of Nigeria where Boko Haram is quite active, the terror group. And, you know, I would have conversations with these women, you get to know them. If you're doing this work right, you really get to know each other well and you see the price that they pay. And many of them would often kind of disclose to me and it wasn't ever the first meeting and it wasn't something they usually spoke about from the stage when they were talking about their work, you know, but quietly over dinner or coffee, they would disclose that they were a survivor of sexual assault or female genital mutilation or that they had been raped by a family member or that they had been specifically targeted for speaking out politically for asserting their rights with sexual violence. As we saw, for example, in Egypt, which we write about in the book in 2011, you know, women came to Tahrir Square to make their voices heard and call for a new government, call for a new regime. And they were very specifically targeted with sexual violence to try to silence them. You know, and for me, I, I share in the book, I myself am a survivor and I'm, I'm a church girl. I come from a conservative <laughs> faith background. You know, and so, you know, I'm so glad to see the change, for example, in our faith communities to actually support women, starting to support women and coming forward. But at the time when I was a young woman, I didn't feel like this was something that I could talk about or share. It was something that was a cause of great shame for me and that I felt like I had done something profoundly wrong. It was my fault. You know, so when I sit with other women from other maybe different faiths, but somewhat similar conservative cultures at times, there are some some places of alignment 
you know, I've always had a, a place in my heart for understanding the burden of carrying that, right? Um, but I think it's overdue that we just say this isn't a woman's problem or a personal problem or a shame problem. This is a policy problem. It's a human rights problem. And that's what the book is really about. It's talking about the fact that we really need to further women's rights and we need to further women's equality, whether that's the laws, legal enforcement, political office, you know, in business, economically, whatever it might be to make sure that women have the integrity of their bodies to be able to lead, to lead without fear, right? So I've just been so thankful also to go on this journey <laughs> together with Rachel, but also to get to know the women in the book. And I really hope that readers will get to know them too. When we wrote the book, we really wanted those women to be centered and not ourselves. So the author's notes very brief in the beginning because we really just wanna to get to the women. Um, and we wanted to make sure that they were the centerpiece of our, our book and our stories because they deserve that. They are heroic, creative, and courageous. Thank you, Megan. Um, so let, let's go before the author's note to the forward of Awakening, and it's written by Tarana Burke. Uh, so she's the founder of uh, the Me Too movement. Um, and how did the movement that started, I guess, almost 15 years ago with a quiet admission of her saying Me Too as a shared language between survivors grow into a connective framework for movements across the globe spurred by the hashtag MeToo. Um, and Megan, I know that you um, are the kind of the digital expert here. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, that movement, kind of the social media technology behind all of this as well. Sure. You know, I'm happy to start and I know Rachel will surely have something to offer from her expertise too. But, you know, one of the great gifts of this process was being able to talk to Tarana and to, to give her this request saying, please, would you consider writing the Ford? And we had a really powerful phone call with her when we were first kind of sharing with her about the project where we were sharing with her these stories, these stories of women organizing digitally to come together as survivors, to change the law, to lead, to really foster social change and fight for that. And one of the great gifts was we were telling Toronto stories about some of these digital campaigns like Ariwa Me Too, which just means North in Hausa language, which is in the Northern part of Nigeria, you know, or sharing with her some of the hashtags from other countries or events like the Orat March in Pakistan, where they were carrying signs that said Me Too, uh, you know, and she hadn't heard some of these stories. She was not even aware of some of the impacts of this movement that she had started, that she had really been the mother to. And I think what's so powerful about it too is that it started in real time. It started in this very intimate moment between her and a young woman in Selma, Alabama, when she was working as a community organizer and counselor. And a young woman had confided in her that she had been sexually assaulted by a family member. And Tarana is very honest in saying that she did not have the courage in that moment to say the words, me too. Uh, she was carrying that shame, that vulnerability and... Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, you know, that's that was the birth of the movement. But then 
when it starts hitting the internet, it goes viral, right? We all know that in 2017, we saw this incredible spread. You know, and Rachel and I did research where we saw that this, this hashtag went viral in a hundred countries. It's been customized into dozens of language. So the campaign became hyper-localized, but also transnational, right? So, you know, women in the countries that we study made it their own, but then they were also taking tactics from other countries, inspirations, lessons learned, you know, figuring out how they could use content and use Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp to organize. And so that was really fulfilling to see that the movement had such vibrancy and that it also, because of the digital tools, was able to bring in a more diverse group of women than ever before. There were women from all kinds of racial, ethnic, religious backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds that were able to take part because of the digital organizing. Nice. Rachel, I know that you can add to that. Absolutely. I mean, we were really struck in country after country to see how 21st century tools transformed the movement, the methods used, and the speed. You know, during earlier eras of the women's rights movement, victories were won only after lifetimes of organizing. It took more than a century for women globally to win the right to vote. It took decades to enshrine the principle that women's rights are human rights into international law. But today, thanks to these new digital tools, the movement can mobilize millions in a matter of weeks or even days. And the tools, as Megan said, have also helped to create this incredible diversity in the global women's movement, granting purchase to anyone with access to an internet connection and helping women find new strength in numbers. We argue in the book that the internet has become in some senses, a 21st century public square for women, especially in places where their freedom is circumscribed and they can't gather safely in public, but they can post anonymously online. And the result is a global women's movement that is more diverse, more powerful, and more far-reaching than at any point in history. I love that. So as, as we move on, one of the other things that, um, as I looked at the global impact of hashtag MeToo, um, Megan, in your story, you talked about it's important to emphasize that awakening is not about women around the world being awakened to Western feminism, nor is it a book about Western white feminists teaching women in other countries about their own liberation. So how has the hashtag MeToo movement in the US informed the global movement? And conversely, um, what lessons can the US learn from the international advancements? And, and we'll start with you, uh, Rachel. Well, you know, in the nations that we went to, women we know have long organized for their own equality. And interestingly, in many of the countries we write about, online activism on sexual harassment and abuse long predates the popularization of the Me Too hashtag here in the United States. Now, I'll give an example. In Brazil, back in 2013, there was an online campaign against street harassment called Chega de Fiu Fiu, which translates from Portuguese into no more catcalling. And that snowballs into a new hashtag campaign, which was issued under the phrase Meo Primero Assidio, which stands for My First Harassment, where women across Brazil in what became the fifth most frequently searched phrase on Google in that country 
began to post about their first experiences, their initiation into this culture of harassment and abuse. And that creates an awakening that then turns from a campaign against sexual harassment into campaigns for political power. This is all happening before the Me Too movement goes viral here in this country. Now, of course, when the movement does go viral and it becomes global, women activists who were already working on these issues in country for decades find strength in this collective power. It's, I remember one activist I interviewed in Brazil saying it was as if they were finally validated where the world was saying, see, this isn't okay anymore. And so that strength, not only in numbers, but across borders really helps the movement do even more in local contexts. You know, and I'm, I'm happy to add to that, that I think it's so important that we approach these issues as Americans with both leadership and humility. You know, the U.S. has an incredible leadership role to play on the global stage, whether that's through diplomacy or through our international development assistance, our foreign aid, which has saved millions of lives all over the world, particularly of, you know, mothers, children, you know, healthcare, you name it. Like the U.S. has been an incredible force for good. But it's also important to approach the work with humility that our words, our terms, our ways of working, what we think is most vital may or may not work for a community. And that it's really important as we argue in the book to actually work backwards from what these women are telling us themselves in their communities. What do they need? What is the most important thing to them? You know, how can we support them? Not how can we give them support and then direct them, you know, to deliver solutions because they're going to be the ones that still live in this community long after our work is done, right? They know the community leaders, they know the faith leaders, they know what strengths and weaknesses there are. And they also know the particular dangers, which is something that we really touch on in the book in terms of, you know, a lot of these women suffer from real backlash for standing up. And that can be anything from, you know, threats to their physical safety, their family members losing jobs, you know, having to go into hiding. I even got messages this weekend over WhatsApp from some of the Pakistani activists who were part of the Women's March there. And they've had such reprisals, they've had to go into hiding even recently and were concerned about the risk to themselves and their lives and their families, you know. So they're gonna have to be the ones to make these tough decisions. They're the, gonna be the ones that know the right way forward. And I think it's so important. And the only other thing I would just add is that, you know, I think the racial justice movement in the United States and the fact that Me Too have both over the last several years gotten incredible power, I don't think is a mistake. I think it's, it's vulnerable groups, it's disenfranchised groups. I think I see learning tactics from each other, um, getting inspiration from each other, and also seeing that there's true power in collective speaking out together, like collective power in organizing, and particularly digitally, even during the pandemic, you know, huge gains, huge shifts. And so I don't think it's, uh, as we write in the book, we don't think it's just happenstance that this all happened. I think it's very intentional. And I think the movements are really learning from each other. Yeah. Um, I, I really loved the stories. I loved hearing from the women that, you know, the really brave um, and courageous uh, stories of their struggle uh, for women's rights and, you know, that you have so well captured in the book. Can, can we hear just a, a few of the stories that really stand out to you? And I know they all stand out because you wrote about them, um, but would love to hear some that, you know, that are just impactful. You talked about the, um, Megan, you just talked about the, the fact that race and color 
probably comes into play as well. And um, Mario Franco's story in Brazil really stood out to me as well. So would love to hear some of the ones that really speak to you and that you think our audience here today would love to hear about. Well, I'm happy to jump in since you mentioned Marielle Franco uh, from Brazil, uh, which was a country I had the privilege of traveling to. And you know, her story begins uh, in the aftermath of the rise in women's activism against abuse and harassment that I mentioned. You, know, you have women who are raising their voices online and then eventually in the streets this incredible rise in activism starting in 2013 and cascading over several years. It was, it was within that context that women in Brazil began to turn to campaigns and political participation as part of the solution to the problem of harassment, recognizing that many of the people making the laws were neither women nor were they survivors. And so that gives rise to an election in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro of an incredibly courageous woman, Marielle Franco, who is a black lesbian human rights activist from the favelas, the urban slums on the periphery of the city who no one expects to win political power in a country that's controlled by privileged white men. But in 2016, after all of this activism and women joining together across racial, ethnic, religious and economic divides, she's ultimately elected in a landslide. She's the fifth highest vote getter out of the 50 candidates who win. In the end, you know, she pays the ultimate price for her advocacy. She is assassinated in broad daylight by those who opposed her commitment to ending harassment and discrimination. But I remember her chief of staff telling us that those who were opposed to her and ended her life thought that by killing Marielle, they would bury her. And instead they planted a seed because following her assassination, a record number of women and women of color in particular, Afro-Brazilian women who for so long were underrepresented and overlooked in the political process, decide that they are gonna run for office. They're not gonna back down. And women's political participation in the 2018 federal elections jumps from 10 to 15%. Now there's still a, a long road to go, particularly under Brazil's current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has fought tooth and nail against women's rights in that country. But Brazilian women are assuming positions of power in record numbers, and that will give them the power ultimately to transform the agenda. I think of one particular woman uh, in one of the chapters that I was really grateful to work on, which is focused on Nigeria. A young woman, she's in her mid-20s, right? So not the age we usually think of as leaders of foreign policy. And I think that's wrong. I think it needs to change. But I may be, you know, partial because I started working for Malala when she was 16 years old. Uh, so I, I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in young people's ability to lead. Uh, but you know, for Kriya's like in her mid twenties, she's living in the Northern part of Nigeria. She's from uh, Kaduna state and she and another woman who's a survivor, uh, Khadija Adamu, she sees Khadija's post about being assaulted by a partner and almost losing her life. And, you know, just in a moment she decides, you know, for Kriya decides she's gonna lend her support. And so she just writes back really quickly you know, I'm, I'm here for you, I'm supporting you, you know, Ariwa, me too, meaning the Northern part of Nigeria, me too. So customizing the hashtag. 
this starts to catch like wildfire. It winds up translating into them being able to get government officials to step down who've been sexually harassing and assaulting women. It winds up in them helping to force through legislation in the northern part of Nigeria that changes the age that young women can get married uh, because forced early marriage is a huge issue, child marriage in northern Nigeria. Uh, and it winds up inspiring women in the majority Christian South. So these are majority Muslim communities in the North and the majority Muslim Christian communities in the South are coming together. And the women in the South wind up uh, taking down university professors who were demanding sex for grades from their students um, at some of the top universities in Nigeria. They wind up naming and shaming uh, celebrity, you know, evangelical church pastors there that were abusing, allegedly abusing young women, underage women, under the guise of pastoring them. And, you know, this movement really just connects across some of these barriers, right, that we think really are supposed to separate us or are hard to overcome. And so I really am inspired by women like Fakria because like her work has taken on a life of its own, but if she hadn't come forward, it wouldn't have started. And I will say, we had Fakria come speak with us at the Council on Foreign Relations two nights ago, you know, and it's it's common to lose power. Uh, you know, in Nigeria, the power gets cut. That sometimes happens in Texas too lately, as we all know. Um, but, you know, she just kept going. The power went out and she was like, don't worry about it. The internet won't go out. I can still keep talking. So she's sitting there in the dark, unstoppable, just, you know, just telling us about all the legislation she's fighting for. You know, so these women are extraordinary, you know, and in the book, we really argue that they need, they need to be supported. They need the resources that they are seeking to support their work. And a lot of the women, they're doing this on a shoestring budget. It is literally on some smartphones, on their Facebook accounts. It's, you know, content that they're making themselves. Like one young woman I talked to in Tunisia, she's like, you know, there's not a lot of good content about sexual violence in Tunisian Arabic. I found myself like designing things so that like women could share these images online and educate each other and reach out. You know, these women have got so much hustle, you know, <laughs> and it's really just a gift to talk to them and see them in action. So, you know, in the book, we talk about resourcing these women appropriately and really supporting them. And that's something that we hope will change. The first question that we, we received was who will protect an entire generation of Afghan women who grew up without major restrictions while the Taliban destroys their freedom? I'm happy to start. You know, the United States has a responsibility here. Um, and it's really critical that the Biden administration advocate for the meaningful participation of women in every process in Afghanistan. We are all seeing the news reports about how fraught the situation on the ground is. And we know it's particularly dangerous for women who have been under sustained assault. But as the questioner notes, and just as the Me Too movement has kind of shifted the understanding that women have of their power and their place, so too is Afghanistan a different place for women and girls than it was 20 or 30 years ago. It has a constitution. Girls have returned to school. Women are in the workplace. That's the Afghanistan of today. And for the country to function effectively, women's fundamental rights cannot and should not be taken away. You know, my understanding is that many in the Biden administration are focused on the safety and the security of women in this transition. And quite frankly, they really need to be. They need to ensure financial support and assistance to women's organizations on the ground. They need to provide safety for the women who have been so vocal in fighting against the Taliban, and that includes visas. And they need to include women in all conflict resolution processes, not just because 
it's the right thing to do, but also because it's strategic, because doing so will advance long-term stability in that country and in the region. But I know Megan has a lot to say about this issue too. Thank you so much, Rachel. I, you know, have to say one of the gifts of living in DC is that you get to interact with diplomats, you know, and activists and women leaders from all over the world. And we were grateful to have at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, I, I got to host the ambassador of Afghanistan to the United States, Royal Romani. And Ambassador Romani is the first woman to have been the ambassador of Afghanistan to the United States. Something that was just incomprehensible, right? Even 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, just not even on the table as an option, right? So a lot of progress has been realized, but I think this gets back to how tough it is now to try to enforce these sorts of provisions when women aren't taken care of as part of conflict resolution, conflict mitigation, you know, the way the US pulled out or began or announced the process um, quite haphazardly, as has been documented, uh, you know, we, we really, we really gave up so much ground that we could have used to secure gains. You know, and for me, I come from a military family and I, I have to say my cousin fought in Afghanistan and our entire family was terrified the whole time that he would not come home. And I think of how he sacrificed and how other you know, folks in my family have sacrificed in military service. And I sure wish that some of these gains that Americans contributed so much time, American lives you know, and American tax dollars to, had been much more part of our negotiations, right? Um, I'm grateful that the current leadership is working on this. And I'm also grateful that the dialogues come far enough that this is bipartisan. Like, can we shout out our former first lady, Laura Bush, for always caring about this issue, you know, and she's continued to advocate on it. Um, there's leading democratic women who are now fighting on the Hill to try to make sure these women are protected. So, you know, I think it's really, a sign of hope. This is a bipartisan issue, but you know, I think we're going to have to be. We're on the back foot now. You know, we did not center women in those negotiations and how we were leaving Afghanistan. And I hope that's something that changes. And I think that will change when we see more women in senior diplomatic roles and senior leadership roles, because they're going to come to that negotiating table and make sure that women's interests are represented. I love that. And, you know, we see that in these stories that the hashtag Me Too is more than just, you know, sexual harassment, violence, and abuse. It really is a catalyst for a more global movement on um, broader women's rights. Um, so, you know, leading to women finding not only their voice, but their rightful place um, in, you know, boardrooms and in, in politics and so forth. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about some of the, the policy around um, what we're seeing, the changes in the movement there, whether it's, you know, from a corporate responsibility standpoint or government um, for some of the, the things that we're seeing in the women's rights movement. Well, in the book, we propose an agenda for action that's really informed by the women leaders that we talk to on the front lines of the movement that we've come to refer to as the five R's. And they are redress for survivors, reform of the law, representation for women, resources for implementation, and a recalibration of social norms. And we believe this agenda will help turn protest into progress so that women not only speak up to demand their rights, but also importantly have the power to implement them and redress or justice for survivors of sexual assault and harassment is really at the top of the agenda for almost every Me Too activist that we interviewed. You know, for centuries, people accused of sexual abuse, especially those with the most power, have really had the legal system tipped in their favor, 
while the reputations and integrity of survivors have been put on trial. And this injustice helps explain why before the online Me Too movement could offer both anonymity and strength in numbers that so few women were willing to come forward to name what was plainly happening all around us. So delivering justice for survivors requires a functioning and balanced legal system, one that certainly protects the rights of the accused, but that also protects the rights of survivors and is free from discrimination and stereotypes about women. And in the book, we write about many legal victories and policy victories that already have been won in a lot of the countries that we highlight, uh, but not everywhere. And as a first step, we recommend that governments need to ensure that there are adequate legal protections against harassment and assault in place in every country. Three years into the Me Too movement, an astounding 50 countries still have no legal prohibitions on sexual harassment in the workplace. And we also know that even where there are laws prohibiting sexual abuse on the books, too often they're written in a way that prevents justice for women. So we need legislators to step up to eliminate rules that rig the system against survivors and shield abusers from accountability. I mean, we saw in the stories from Sweden that while the, you know they're seen as very progressive on women's rights and their, their laws that are on the books, we had lots of stories from Sweden as well. Um, not sure who, who wrote the chapter or did the research on Sweden, but I thought that was a very interesting you know, stories um, coming from that part of the world. Rachel did, so I'm sure she'd love to speak to that. And then I would love to talk a little more about the resourcing we need to deliver these women, so. I'll jump, I'll jump in quickly on Sweden and um, mention that exactly, Michelle, as you say, Sweden is really thought of as a utopia for women. You know, it's a place with generous parental leave and childcare policies. The streets team with fathers pushing strollers and at playgrounds alongside mothers. And yet the Me Too movement there really punctures this preconception of Sweden as a place of gender equality and awakens Swedes to the persistent inequalities that still remain. And the movement there was ignited by a woman named Cici Valin, who is a Swedish actress and writer who alleges that she was raped by a prominent male journalist. So she goes to the police with her claim to no avail, no action is taken. And then years later, following the expose of Harvey Weinstein that she reads about online, she becomes inspired to post her own account on Instagram and quickly finds that numerous other women come forward to make disturbingly similar accusations against this man. After Cece's initial public accusation, there's a wave of activism in Sweden and women actually work together to organize across 65 different industries using really clever hashtags that helped the movement not only go viral, but stay in the news. So for example, the restaurant worker industry posted under a hashtag that translates to, we are boiling with rage. And the healthcare workers posted using a phrase that means, now it will really hurt. And unions posted under not negotiable. And these humorous hashtags help the movement kind of spread far and wide across the entire country. And as a result of the popularization of the movement, we see some legal reform, a consent law is passed and activists are able to take a lot of ground. 
but challenges really still remain. And that's exemplified by the case of Cece Valine, whose post initially sparked the movement there. Cece is ultimately sued by her alleged attacker for defamation. And despite the fact that numerous other women came forward to make similar accusations, he wins his case and Cece is sentenced to pay him damages for the injury that she caused to his reputation. And this is a tactic that we see employed by powerful men all around the world. And it shows how our justice systems still cry out for reform. Megan, I know you wanted to weigh in on the, um, the solutions. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's so important, right, to, to hear these stories and to understand what's happening in these countries, but also to get super real that a lot of the change that's happening in these countries is not dependent on whether we're inspired, you know, or whether we understand better. It, it really requires us then partnering, right, partnering with these women. And so one of the R's in our agenda of the five R's is resources. And that one, we really tried to hit hard in the book because two things need to happen. We as individuals can take action by supporting these women. And if you read the book and you are inspired by any of them, please don't just be inspired, take that next action. You can find information about how to contact the organizations or support them in the book. And we tried to have a really robust list for each country and then global organizations too, like the Global Fund for Women and UN Women, uh, so that you can know that you're making a difference in, in what you're doing if you want to lend your personal support. And then also just to talk to you know our elected leaders and say, we want to see more women's groups supported with our international development assistance. Right now, globally, global development aid, less than one penny of every dollar will go to a woman's organization, an organization advocating for women's rights. And we think that has to change, especially because half the population is women. How can we have half the population be women and get less than one penny of every dollar going to organizations furthering the rights of women, right? So we want to see profound change in that area as well, because otherwise, like, we're just going to keep telling these stories for many more decades. Like the change needs to be supported in ways that really matter. And that's an important role that Americans can play. So I'm going to go to another question from our audience. This is from Howard. Um, what are your thoughts regarding the recent judicial ruling in the Bill Cosby case in light of the Me Too movement? You know, we uh, recently wrote about this in the Washington Post and basically said that our view is evaluating the strength of this global movement only through the lens of the consequences on one famous American man would really be a mistake. You know, that case we know was flipped on a procedural technicality, not because the more than 60 women who came forward weren't believed. And Me Too continues to have a profound impact on the lives of women, not only in the United States, but all around the world. And you will see in the book, we hope you will read the book, that there are many examples of where justice for women is deferred or delayed or denied. But we're also seeing remarkable victories. We're seeing legal doctrine reinterpreted because of a shift in social norms. We're seeing new policies passed in countries that would surprise you. And we believe that the momentum is there to actually start to see some of the legal reforms that we recommend. Excellent. Um, so, you know, you raise a, a point there with the progress. Um, we see a lot of the high profile cases, public figures, politicians, um, entertainment industry, 
what does this look like for the economically disadvantaged or um, you know some of the less publicized areas that we see? Um, what does the movement look like for those people? So you totally got it right on the head, Michelle. <laughs> it's if, if this movement's not working for those women, it's not working, right? If, if you can only win, if you can command the press and hire the fanciest lawyer, uh, and, and pursue legal action, which, you know, even the United States can take years, right? How, what, chan what chance the hell does a, does a woman earning less than a dollar a day have, you know, in, a, in parts of Pakistan, in parts of Northern Nigeria, you know, in Egypt? No chance, right? So, the, so this movement has to work for those women. The good news is that all the women we talk to in those countries who are leading this movement understand that, and they are already building tools and mechanisms to make sure that women from all backgrounds can access you know, justice, ideally, right? So I think of in Pakistan, there's actually a woman there named Nigat Dad, who's a lawyer. And, you know, she's not only representing one of the most high profile cases, which is of a Bollywood celebrity named Nisha Shafi, who accused another Pakistani celebrity of sexual harassment and, you know, dominated headlines. She also started up a legal defense fund. And this is very similar to what women did here in the United States with the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, recognizing that the movement here couldn't just be about, you know, actresses who were harassed by Harvey Weinstein. It had to work for women who were working on, you know, auto assembly lines and farm workers and women who were working in domestic care roles, you know. So they've literally named that fund Time's Up No More in Urdu <laughs> in Pakistan and are have been fielding calls from all over the country and have started representing women. And they've put together a group of attorneys, male and female, who are willing to take on these cases and help these women, which is really an incredible commitment because the Pakistani legal system, not only do you not have a great chance of getting through it, you know, on the, the merits of your case, because it's it's often not a just context. It's also, you know, very bureaucratic, very delayed and, and very hard to navigate, right? So you really do need that special help to get through it, to have a fighting chance. And they're doing that. I think of women in Egypt that are piloting cases. There's a woman named May Al-Shami and she was able to get some of the first damages. She's one of the first two or three women to come forward. And although she's paid a terrible price for this, she, you know, she had retributions in her workplace, she lost her job. The regime has come after her and said that she's part of a terror group for you know, daring to speak out about women's rights and her own experience. She still says she wouldn't change anything because she knows that she went through this and it's gonna pave a way for other women coming behind her. So it is challenging. The work is gonna have to continue to focus on the least franchised, the least uh, able, you know, the least privileged, but I, I'm confident that the women in the movement all over the world know that and they're focused on it. A follow-up question um, to that, and this came knowing our audience with the World's Affairs Council here, um, talk about the economic potential of women and girls that has been held back and how do these special movements and, and the resulting changes impact that potential? That's a great question. And it's a question that we've gotten from some of our colleagues working on foreign affairs. Uh, you know, why does this issue matter? Why does this book matter when it comes to foreign policy? And our book shows how structural inequalities and power imbalances, which are fueled by sexual harassment and discrimination, undermine women's participation in economic life and political life and social life. And closing these gender gaps is not only a moral imperative, 
we argue that it's a strategic imperative because doing so furthers prosperity, stability, and security both at home and abroad. So let's take the issue of economic growth, which the questioner rightly raised. We know that closing gender gaps in the workforce would generate an estimated 12 to $25 trillion in global GDP growth. So think about that. At a time when we're struggling to recover from the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, we are leaving trillions of dollars of economic potential on the table. So addressing barriers like harassment and discrimination that really impede female labor force participation and earning potential matters not only to women, it matters to all of us. I would just add briefly that being the, the human rights activist of this duo with this esteemed uh, women's rights lawyer, that, you know, I think it's important to make economic arguments, but it's also okay just to say that women should have equal rights as human beings. Like, that's also okay, you know? And so I think it's great to make these economic arguments, but because we'll contribute to the economy is not a reason that women should have to produce to not be sexually assaulted or pushed out of the workplace. You know, it is our right to be there. Um, and it's funny because sometimes you talk to women in these countries and they say, thank you for doing all that research about how much money I'll put into my local economy, I agree. But could you also assert <laughs> the fact that I have a right to be in these rooms and that I am a human who's worthy of equal rights to the men and boys in my family? So I feel like we have to always make both points, right? Uh, and that's why, you know, we're so grateful to have uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton support the book because of course her, you know, historic statement at the 1995 Beijing Women's Conference, Women's Rights Are Human Rights, was considered you know, this mighty statement at the time, you know, and we're still fighting that fight today, but we have come quite a long way. And that's also why we have faith for the future for this movement. Another question from the audience. Um, are religious groups of all faiths supporting the Me Too movement or is there some pushback? I can take this one uh, because I, you know, I talk about my own faith community and, you know, it's when I worked for Malala, I really enjoyed on long plane rides, we would have all kinds of discussions about Islam and about Christianity. And it would be like, what do you think happens when people die? Like, what do you think should happen if people are not good to each other? You know, what, what do you think you need to do to be good to your family and community? What does your faith teach? And, you know, really long flights, really boring drives. Like we would have these really vibrant discussions and it was such a gift, right? To learn more about not only, you know, her faith, but how she applied it in her everyday life. And I think that there's so much to draw upon in all the world's major faiths. I think that we can stand for our own beliefs, but not against others. So I can I can work on this issue as someone who, who personally comes from a Christian background, but I don't need to stand against anyone else's positions. And I think if you go into these spaces ready to argue just based on human rights accords at the United Nations or your own background, you're going to lose the argument just immediately, right? Like nobody wants to be confronted uh, with that. You know, with, what you can do is find ways to work together based on what that person believes to be the most sacred pr guiding principles, right? You know, and I think of the women in Northern Nigeria in Kaduna State, they've done really interesting work with some of the imams there going to talk about, uh, you know, as, as Muslim women, what, what do they see in the Quran, what does the prophet, peace be unto him, say, you know, about women and about women's uh, roles in society and why they're, they're worthy of these protections, you know, and they've even gone into Islamic schools and done consent education with girls and boys, right? Like we need to engage boys and men in this as well and, and bring them along and be in unity, ideally, right? Let's believe for that. Um, maybe that's something all faiths can pray for, but 
you know, I think that there's a lot of space there and there's, but there's also pushback, you know, here in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention has had a lot of public, um, you know, discussions around the lack of reporting uh, around sexual harassment and assault. And they even started their own hashtag. Some of the survivors did church too, uh, you know, and so that was their version of the Me Too campaign. And I, I don't want to mention that one denomination and say that it's somehow they are the only ones struggling with this, nor is that faith the only faith struggling with this. I think we know from studying sexual harassment and sexual abuse, sexual assault, it thrives in what? Power differential, right? So in any faith community where, where folks are held up to be leaders, if somebody is a bad actor, there's always gonna be a pathway to abuse that power. And that's why we need to get rid of stigma and shame. We need to do things like make sure Tarana Burke's survivor's agenda is something that we're all working towards and start to make this something that can show the best of all of our faiths, that we stand with women and girls who have been harmed and that we believe in restoration, right? Like, I think that's something we can all believe in and we can probably find a through line of justice and restoration in most major faith traditions. So I have hope, even though at first it can look like communities are disparate, we can actually work together. Looking, looking at our time, I'm going to ask one more question from uh, that I got from the audience, and then I'll give you both an opportunity just to wrap up. And um, as, as one question here says, in the second edition of the book, what would you change or add? But we're not going to go there yet. Um, this next question from Susan, what educational criteria needs to be developed or has been developed that can be or is effective to stop people from believing that they have a right to abuse others? What is the future? Big question. Well, one of the R's and our five R agenda is recalibration. You know, we talk about the importance of recalibrating social norms, even where strong laws and policies are on the books, deeply ingrained stereotypes can block their implementation and perpetuate this imbalance of power. So it's, it's time for a recalibration. And to shift attitudes, we've seen advocates around the world enlisting allies to push for cultural reform rather than focusing solely on redress legally or policy change. Activists are working to promote a reassessment of women's power, including portrayals that celebrate women exercising leadership. Other advocates are demanding instruction in sex education that teaches children from the earliest ages about the importance of consent. And you know, we recognize that cultural transformation can be a long process, but history also shows us that norms can change even when they seem intractable after hard fought campaigns for justice. Just consider the difference from one generation to the next after the fall of apartheid in South Africa or the transformation and the acceptability of gay marriage here in the United States, the cultural shifts that are already being seen because of the Me Too campaign promise to be another transformative moment, one in which women will have hopefully the power to claim the rights that they've named. So Rachel, while you are, you are speaking, I do love how, the, how Nina, or is it Vina, uh, worded this for the second edition of the book, what would you change or add? But I, I really want to ask, what else do you want this audience to know about the book or some of the work that you're doing? Because I know that there is much work left to be done. 
Well, the truth is we selected the seven countries that we did to tell the story of the global Me Too movement around the world because they represented a diversity in terms of geography, cultural traditions, uh, ethnicities, races, systems of government from you know, communist autocracies to small social democracies. But the truth is we could have written this entire book with seven different countries. In fact, we could have written it with 50 different countries um, so we hope that the focus that we put on this burgeoning movement globally uh, is fodder for more writing on this topic because it is critical that we not only focus on the rights of women here in the United States, but the rights of women around the world. We can see how gender injustice can spread easily across borders, but so too can its cure. And we have a lot to learn in collaboration with our partners and our sisters around the world. In terms of what we hope people will do, you know, get the book, read the book, and then as Megan said before, we hope you'll take action. We hope you'll support some of the women and organizations we write about in the book, and we hope that you will make change in your own life, you know, challenge harmful and discriminatory norms that you hear espoused by family and friends. When you hear jokes or stereotypes about the truthfulness of women who come forward about sexual abuse, challenge those. If you hear people questioning the likability or relatability of women seeking positions of power, challenge them. Shifting attitudes about sexual abuse and women's leadership, it's a really important part of addressing this broader power imbalance. So I see that Liz is on. Not sure if, if we have 30 seconds for Megan to give her last words. Rachel That's said a lot. That's very generous. It's very Rachel did a great job. So all I'll say as an activist that's used to having a bullhorn is I hope that everyone here is in their power as women, as men, as people that care about these issues. And I have to say the whole world comes through Texas. There's so many resources there. You have a whole lot of people who run for president from Texas. You have powerful members of Congress and in the Senate. So like, I hope you'll make your voices heard with those folks. You're their constituents and your voice can actually have a tremendous impact on how we reach and support these women and girls and women all over the world. So I hope you will leave tonight feeling empowered and awakened to your own voice and that you'll use it to support these incredible women that we write about. Thank you so much. Liz, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Well, thank you. What a fascinating, enlightening, functional, engaging discussion. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I also want to thank Pat Patterson again for our endowed lecture series. And again, to all of the amazing women involved with this program uh, tonight. Thank you, ladies, truly. And before we sign off, I just would like to remind our viewers to please buy a copy of this book, Awakening, and to use the code DFWWORLD for 10% off your online purchase at our partners in Terrabane Books. And to catch up on any of our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel at DFWWORLD. Ladies, thank you so very much for your time this evening on this extremely important topic. Have a great evening, everyone. Goodbye.